All right. Well, it's good to be with you, and it's good to open the Word together and to dig in on this uh, very special day. It's the Lord's Day. <clears throat> I would say that, of course, you know this, but today is Palm Sunday, one of the more significant Christian celebrations in the church calendar. It's known in some denominations as the first day or first Sunday in Holy Week. Christians in America and actually all over the world will be keeping the celebration in various ways, some going so far as to incorporate palm branches into their worship services. And as significant and special as this day has become in the church worldwide, you might be interested to know that Palm Sunday and Christmas and Easter, for that matter, are not events that the New Testament commands us to observe as holy days uh, in their own right or celebrations in their own right. Now, that doesn't mean, of course, that the Incarnation didn't happen or that the Resurrection didn't happen. They did, of course. Christianity is certainly solidly grounded in historical fact. Never forget that. Our faith is not mystical, right? It's, it's based in real events, reason, and truth. And contrary to popular belief, the Bible does not invite people to take a blind leap of faith. Our faith is based on truth and on facts, uh, historical facts, that is. And there are many biblical truths that we cherish and that we live out. They are all important, and they're all significant. So the Bible really never singles out one biblical truth over another to us in order to observe uh, in some special way. The days of Old Testament festivals, they're over. I will mention, and this is a little bit different, but there are two commemorative ordinances that we practice in the church, right? We, we practice baptism and the Lord's Supper. But baptism is a once-for-all ceremony that every believer is commanded to perform in a, as a public testimony of his or her faith or conversion. And God commanded us to practice the Lord's Supper because it is a sign of the new covenant. What I'm getting at is this. Palm Sunday celebrations are traditions, quite man-made. There is nothing inherently wrong, of course, with some traditions, and this particular one is fine, as with Christmas and Easter, for that matter. I simply draw your attention to the fact that all of them are mandate, are not mandated. They're man-made. Somewhere back in church history... Some well-meaning church folk decided that it would be a perfectly good idea to celebrate the events behind what are now sacred times for the Christian church. That's all. And as long as we're on the subject of tradition, even the title Palm Sunday is man-made. Did you know that? You won't find that in the New Testament either. It's obviously based on the event itself where those who welcomed Jesus into Jerusalem on this day were waving palm branches. And that was an ancient Near Eastern symbol or a symbolic act for triumph and peace. Wow. Well, is there anything about Palm Sunday that I, or anything else that I should know about? Well, since you're asking... None of the gospel accounts ever call this event the triumphal entry. I kid you not. 
Now, some skeptics out there might be thinking, but, but it's in my Bible. I'm, I'm looking at it right now. It says it right there on the page. Well, what you're looking at is a heading, of course, that the editors of the English translations invented to describe the passage. Sorry, but those headings are not inspired. Uh, now, where did the editors get this, though? Well, probably from the context. Now, this wasn't the first time, of course, that Jesus came into Jerusalem. He obviously uh, had come and gone many times into the holy city and out of the holy city his entire life. But this time is significant because on this occasion, Jesus, ent Jesus enters the city differently than he had ever done before. It was in a manner that befitted kings of the Old Testament who had been victorious in battle and secured peace for the nation. They would parade into the city then on a donkey, a beast of burden. And the meaning is clear. Even though most, at, most in the crowd at this time, when Jesus did this, completely missed it. But the meaning is clear. Jesus was claiming to be the nation's Messiah King who would save them from their sins. He would triumph over death and save them. And that's true. Jesus is Messiah King. And he rode in, into, this, uh, into Jerusalem in this way to symbolize that he was the one who would triumph over sin and death. That's why they chose that man-made title to characterize um, or describe the passage. But let's understand, this was the beginning of his Passion Week, right? This is the beginning of the Passion Week. Next week, we celebrate the resurrection. Lots happen in the Passion Week. Lots of terrible things. Jesus did not triumph over sin and death at this time. It wasn't until the end of this week when he rose victoriously to prove so. And according to the events that ensued shortly after Jesus' official presentation to the nation, situations for him would go terribly bad. As the prophet said, there, he came to his own, but his own did not know him or receive him. As a result, they would soon turn on him. They would hunt him down. They would arrest him. They'd subject him to a kangaroo court. They'd fabricate lies and false testimony to set him up in order to create a narrative, a false narrative that would allow the Jews to accuse him of blasphemy and Rome to accuse him of sedition and insurrection. Hmm. Both would then collaborate to torture him and then crucify him outside the city. I think it's safe to say that Jesus' entry into Jerusalem at this time was anything but triumphant. In one sense, to call this event, event the triumphal entry is really somewhat of a misnomer. Now, I'm not saying that this event is at all fictitious. This is a true account. And Jesus is claiming to be the king who will vanquish sin and death. But not at this time. It was the beginning of the Passion Week. Having said that, I don't deny that Jesus, again, made a, triumph, a triumphal entry. I think he made a powerful and profound entrance, perhaps the most triumphant occasion ever in Jesus' ministry, just not at this event. Rather, it came after the Passion Week, after Jesus' death, and the place was not Jerusalem, but heaven. 
specifically the heavenly sanctuary, and the audience was God himself. Jesus presented himself to God when after his death, he came into the heavenly courts as the risen Christ, having already conquered death and made atonement for our sin and saved people for God's own possession. We find it in Hebrews 9, verses 11 to 14. We heard it read this morning as our scripture reference. And it, is, it presents for us a true and honest-to-goodness triumphal entry. So I'm excited to explore it with you on this Palm Sunday. Let's take a look. I see it in two parts. First thing I'd like to, to tell you or, or, or show you, part one, is that Jesus' triumphal entrance inaugurates the new covenant. That's the first thing I want to say. Major part here. Jesus' triumphal entrance inaugurates the kingdom. Verse 11 says that Jesus entered. Now, most English Bibles have appeared, which I don't think really captures the full force of Jesus' action at this point. The word appear lends too much of a passive element to Jesus entering. The Greek word behind this translation is much stronger. The idea is more of an active, deliberate, purposeful presentation. And, and this word actually is used this way most in most of its occurrences in the New Testament. Just give you a smattering of examples here. Matthew 2, uh, two verse 1, for example, it describes the Magi's. Remember, the Magi's deliberate and purposeful visit to Jesus. It wasn't, it wasn't as if they were just in the neighborhood and they decided to drop in and pay him some respect. No, they sojourn many miles, lots of planning, navigating their way by the stars through a dangerous desert to see the newborn king. It took them two years. There is John the Baptist, who we learn in Matthew chapter 3, verse 1, came on the scene in a very dynamic way, preaching in the wilderness of Judea. No one would ever argue that his coming was weak. Not John. Even his very description of his person and what he ate is indicative of how bold he was and how he approached or came on the scene so boldly. In Luke 22, verse 2, there is a description of how the chief priests, the officers of the temple, and the elders approached Jesus. They had, quote, come against him with swords and clubs. No doubt a deliberate, purposeful, and in this case, forcible way they entered into the garden that night. We find the word in 2 Timothy 4.16 as well, where Paul explains that when he had made his first defense, this is before Nero's court, he says, no one supported me. What he means by that is that no one stood with him. No one came with him. No one appeared on the scene and, and stood their ground next to him. Because in this context, that would have been a pretty bold thing to do. There could be no question that the act, the acts here described in these passages are purposeful, they're deliberate, they're calculated, and they're precise. There's nothing passive about it. Jesus' own crosswork was deliberate and purposeful. As you may know, you remember, he said often himself, on more than one occasion, I lay my life down myself, and I have the power to take it up. No one takes it from me. And when the time was right, he did. Purposeful, deliberate, 
I'm suggesting then that the context of Hebrew 9 supports the same idea of a deliberate and purposeful presentation. Jesus presented himself to the Lord in a bold and triumphant manner. Think about it. He came after having dealt a fatal blow to the serpent's head, killing death, and leading a host of captives in his train to glory. Is that not triumphant? Are you getting the picture? There's no question that the way he presented himself to the Lord was anything other than, well, triumphant. But we, can expect, we can't expect anything less from Jesus. He always made deliberate, meaningful, dynamic entrances. Dynamic, of course, in the sense of actively, powerfully, and profoundly. He entered the waters of baptism this way. He entered the wilderness to be tempted by the devil this way. He entered his public ministry this way, in the power of the Holy Spirit, it says. He entered Hades this way to reveal and preach to the spirits there. And his second coming, he will enter upon the world scene in such an unmistakable way, everyone will see him and know who he is. So this short section of verse 11 sets the tone for the rest of the paragraph. By it, the writer keeps to his argument, and there's nothing grander than the new covenant that Jesus inaugurated upon his triumphal entrance in heaven as Messiah King. That's what this first section tells us, and we'll have more to say about it next week when we look at the resurrection of Christ. That's part one. Part one is the entrance. He inaugurates the new covenant by his entrance into the sanctuary. Number two, or, or the second part, I should say, and there are only two parts here. The second part is this. Jesus, uh, Jesus' accomplishments apply the new covenant, or apply our new covenant. So his appearance, or his entrance, inaugurated the new covenant, and now his accomplishments there apply the new covenant. Let me tell you what I mean by that. What made Jesus' triumphal entry so powerful and so profound, of course, are his accomplishments. There's no question. And I already gave you a brief rundown of them. But the writer tells us that they are also what activates or applies the new covenant benefits to us the New Covenant members. He, he makes the case that Jesus made a triumphal entrance as high priest of good gifts into the heavenly tabernacle with his own blood once for all time to secure our eternal redemption and total cleansing of our conscience. That's what he did. And that is the application. It activated the benefits of the New Covenant. We have total redemption, eternal redemption. And we have a, a, a total cleansing of our conscience. Now, let's not get ahead of ourselves. I want to unpack that. We're in the second part. We're talking about how Jesus' accomplishments activate the new covenant for us. Within that, there are four or five, then, elements here that I want to go through with you in order to unpack that. First is this, as we said, he entered as a high priest of the good things that have come. In activating the new covenant for us, he had to enter into the heavenly sanctuary as our high priest of the good things that have come to us now. 
How does he present himself on this special occasion? He comes as a high priest, a high priest of the good things, meaning that he he uh, produces them. He is the one who gives these good things. There, these are none other than, of course, the promises of the new covenant. That those are the good things that Jesus uh, brings uh, or produces for us, activates for us. They're strictly associated with Jesus' high priestly ministry. His anointing work is the source from which all the new covenant blessings flow. That's why Paul would say in Romans 8.32, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he also not freely give us all things? You see the connection between Jesus' Um, uh, priestly ministry, his sacrificial ministry, and the good things that we receive as a result of that. There's a tight connection here. Paul brings it out in this verse. Paul asks a rhetorical question. How will he not also freely give us all things? He will. Believers have free access to new covenant blessings because of Christ's work on their behalf. That's the idea. We experience these covenant blessings in two stages. We experience them immediately, that is, temporally and limitedly now. And we will experience them in full measure for eternity when we get to heaven. Those are the two ways or the two levels that we experience God's covenant blessings. In fact, God's blessings and mercy and grace are very much a foretaste of the same to come in full measure in heaven. Now, when I speak about receiving the benefits of the covenant today in a limited way, don't, don't mistake what I'm saying. Um, to us, our experience uh, of the benefits of the new covenant seem rather full. What I'm saying, of course, is that compared to heaven, we will experience them perfectly. We'll experience them fully. Philip Edgecombe Hughes, in his commentary, the book of Hebrews at this point actually calls this two-stage process the foretaste and the fullness. I thought that was pretty clever. The foretaste and the fullness. He says, quote, Thus the good things both have come and are coming. And the two stages in which we experience them, the foretaste and the fullness, are closely connected as, as effect to cause to the two comings of Christ, the one past and the other still future. We might say it another way. The blessings of the new covenant that we enjoy as believers, that are ours experience now, is our guarantee of even better things to come. Even better, if you can imagine. Even better. God begins to fulfill his covenant promise to us in Christ, which is a sure sign that he will finish it all in heaven. This is why Paul tells the Corinthians, for as many as the promises of God are, in Christ they are yes and amen. Therefore, through Christ also is our amen to the glory of God through us. How should we be thinking of all of this, this foretaste and fullness? Or we might call it the already not yet kind of idea. 
certainly is a, a great paradigm, I think, of the Christian life to motivate us to live our faith aggressively. On the one hand, we have every confidence that we will have perfect fellowship with the saints. We will worship God perfectly. We will have perfect holiness. We will live in God's kingdom. On the other hand, since we don't have that yet, but it is still ours, we live in light of it. We live in light of it, so we strive to have that kind of fellowship now with each other, the kind that is ours in heaven someday. And we strive to have perfect worship here in our church because that's the way we will worship in heaven someday. To exemplify the kind of holiness that is ours in Christ already, but we will experience in full measure when he returns. We may not be in God's kingdom physically right now, but we nevertheless submit to God's rule right now. We are to apply kingdom principles to our lives now. We don't wait till we get to heaven. We consider ourselves to be Christians before anything else. That's where I think this paradigm or this principle helps us the most, especially today. If you believe that, then you will remain loyal to your covenant God. Are you a Christian before you're an American? If you are, then you will obey the government, unless it is sin to do so, in which case you will be prepared for civil disobedience. Are you a Christian before you are a spouse, before you are a parent or a close friend? If you are, then you will be sure to love those people in those relationships the way Jesus calls you to love them, and not the way they want you to love them. With all the madness going around in our country and sadly in many churches today with this whole social justice talk, we would do well to remember that we are Christians before we are whatever we are racially so that the principle of the Bible will determine what is justice for us and not some critical race theory. We could go on, but I think you get the idea. Let me hasten to the second of the five that we need to flesh out here. Jesus entered a heavenly tabernacle. That's what it says in the second part of verse 11. Jesus entered the heavenly tabernacle. He entered not only as high priest of the good things to come, but he entered right into the, 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 the heavenly tabernacle, the, the holy of holies in heaven. When Christ appeared, it says, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made by hands, that is not of this creation. If you were with us uh, a few chapters ago, you already are up on the heavenly sanctuary. This is one that the Apostle John saw and wrote about in his book in Revelation, and it is the very same that God showed Moses uh, on the mountaintop. Moses was to construct a copy of it for the Levitical priesthood, and that would be the center of the Mosaic Covenant, the very center, the very heart of the Mosaic Covenant. This copy pointed to Old Testament saints it pointed them rather ahead to this heavenly sanctuary that would be realized in Messiah, where Messiah would serve as our high priest. That's what it, that's what it was meant to show. His priestly ministry would be the center of a new covenant. And we argued that it was a better sanctuary because it was in heaven. It was spiritual. It's not earthly. It's not, it's not physical uh, in the sense that we can touch it here. It's, it's eternal. It's in heaven. The writer tells us here that Jesus entered that. 
he entered that very sanctuary. Now, practically speaking, we're reminded all the more than that our worship and our relationship with Christ is spiritual and in truth. It's in spirit and in truth. That's what he told the woman at the well. True worship is internal. It's internal. Yes, it affects our, our, our outward acts, obviously. The psalmist even said this. Who can ascend the hill of God? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. The idea of heart means the inner person. If the heart is contrite and right before God, he will produce good works that are acceptable. That's the hands. Jesus ministers to us from a heavenly sanctuary, and the other comforter that he sent, the Holy Spirit, indwells us and ministers to us from within. We are his temple, and the church body is his temple as well. I mean, of course, the people, not the building. Certainly, if we believe this, then we will guard the temple of the Holy Spirit, right? We will guard our bodies, and we will guard the life of our church. We'll guard our lives, and we'll guard the life of the church. By guard, I mean that we will make sure that our lives and the life of this church are appropriate places in which the Holy Spirit may reside and shine and minister to the church and, and, and have an impact to the world. That's what we will endeavor to do with our lives if we understand that the Holy Spirit is, is indwelling us. What kind of sanctuary do we have? Is it conducive to the Spirit's ministry? We better make sure. Number three, Jesus entered this sanctuary with his own blood, verse 12. And not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. The high priest that entered the Holy of Holies once a year in Israel entered with blood of a perfect sacrifice. That blood was absolutely essential. It wasn't optional. You die if you come before the Lord without blood. That was it. Since this setup is a copy of the original in heaven, the same stipulation was true for the heavenly tabernacle, although animal blood would not do. No, this sanctuary is spiritual, it's a heavenly one, and it demanded the blood of a human sacrifice. Because humanity had fallen. Animals would not be a perfect substitute for a human. The Lord demanded a human sacrifice, and that is exactly what Jesus made. He spilled his blood as the just payment for the sin of God's elect, and he, and he saved them. Now, and I'm not going into all of these with great detail, because a lot of this is repeat for us from previous chapters, but but let me focus a little bit on, on some practical stuff here with this one. There are so many Christians who haven't come to appreciate, I think, the meaning of this truth. That Jesus saved us by his blood. It is not a popular truth, believe it or not. That might, that might cause you to scratch your head a little bit. You'll see what I mean in just a moment. Jesus obtained eternal redemption for us. It doesn't say that he made it possible for us to have if we want it. That's why I say that this is not a popular, a popular view or, or, or something that's taught in many churches in America. No unbeliever wants God's redemption. Every unbeliever repudiates it. That's what the Bible says. Paul says in Romans 8, 
that the natural man is at enmity with God. Why would he ever want anything from God, right? He runs. Notice Jesus is the subject of the verb having obtained. The tense refers to an action that Jesus secured or accomplished, not merely made possible. This is active. Jesus obtained redemption. He did it. It's over. Refers to an act in the past. An undefined act, something that just happened back there. Jesus did it. Beloved, the Bible is clear that we are saved by the death of Christ. We are saved by the death of Christ. Listen to Paul's description in Titus 2, verses 13 and 14. Our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, eager for good works. Again, the verbs here are active meaning that Jesus, as the subject of these verbs, is doing the action of these verbs. He gave himself to redeem and to purify, and that's exactly what he did. He accomplished those acts. These active verbs show that Jesus' death actually achieved these goals. We have the same idea in Ephesians 5. In verses 25 to 27, it says, Jesus also loved the church and gave himself for her so that he might sanctify her and having cleansed her by the washing with the word that he might present himself the church in all her glory or present to himself rather the church in all her glory having no, no sprinkle, a spot or wrinkle nor no any such thing but that she would be holy and blameless. Jesus' atonement was effectual. It effected the change God wanted, brought it about. It actually saves all those who benefit from it. And that's obvious by the active verbs here as well. He really did love, and he really did give himself in death for the church, which he also sanctified. For any of us who trust in Christ we would do well to remember that his death what his death accomplished for us. If we would enjoy the greatest comfort, especially in situations where we might be fearful or doubt our salvation. There are Christians who doubt their salvation, usually after some grievous sin. It essentially says to a, a weak believer in faith, Jesus' death did not leave open the possibility for you to be saved and, and beckon you to exercise your faith. No, your faith is not good enough to save yourself. Rather, Jesus' death was effectual, and he saved you when you were still a sinner. Remember, running the other way with your fist shaking in the air. This great truth was, was what no doubt motivated Augustus' top lady to write, Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Those Christians, weak and discouraged today, riddled with doubt and fear, need to know the truth that Jesus saved them by his death, and that there, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, none whatsoever.
Beloved, find rest and comfort for your souls, not in your faith, which at times fails you, but in the finished work of Christ alone. Number three. What else did Jesus do? He entered once for all time. That's what it says in the second part of verse 12. He entered once for all time. He entered the holy place once for all time. That's exactly what it says. The writer already made the argument for the superiority of Jesus' priesthood and his priestly ministry on the basis of Jesus' sacrifice being once for all time. We've seen it before. This was to contrast the endless animal sacrifices that the priests made on behalf of the people. The annual sacrifice as well that the high priest made. Now, I want you to see that the nature of this sacrificial system was not meant to take away sin, but rather to remind the Old Testament believers who offered these sacrifices of Messiah who forgives them by the sacrifice he will make. That's what they were designed to do. So the repetition of their sacrifices, therefore, really pictured the ongoing effects of Jesus' one-time sacrifice. His would be adequate to remove sin for good, please the Father, pay for the penalty of sins, past, present, and future. Once Jesus entered the sacred and holy chamber of the heavenly sanctuary with his blood, he never had to repeat it, ever. Once was enough. Well, I think you know all that. Again, we've rehearsed this before, but we can pull some practical application from this particular uh, teaching here. I wonder how many Christians really believe that once was enough for Christ when it came to remitting sins by his sacrifice. I wonder if they really believe that once was enough. The reason I ask that is because... A lot of times they don't practice this one t- once is enough kind of understanding in, in their lives. What do I mean by that? Well, let me back up and say there's no question that God was satisfied by Jesus' one-time sacrifice. Paul remarks in Romans that Jesus propitiated the Father. That means he satisfied the Father in God's just demands. God was pleased, and that was that. No more. No more need for a sacrifice. What causes me to wonder if Christians really believe this is their habit of constantly dwelling on their past sins, some of which some of which they made all the more they make all the more memorable by the consequences that these past sins bring them. And I wonder if they really believe that Jesus' blood has covered them. These sins that trouble believers, these are sins that believers have repented of and they've asked God for forgiveness. In the new covenant where Christ has secured God's pardon for you in one fell swoop, we should be confident that once is indeed enough when it comes to repentance. Are you sure of that yourself? Would you find yourselves going slavishly back, back there again, Constantly asking God for forgiveness. Constantly wondering, perhaps, if he has. If it is genuine, if your repentance is genuine, if it comes from a sincere heart, then that is all God looks for. And that's enough 
That's enough. It's over. Learn from it. Train yourself with God's help never to sin the same sin over again. And go forward boldly in your faith. So many, however, are plagued by their past. No doubt it's part of the reason, or part of the reason rather, is is their ignorance of sound doctrine. But the other part is, is that they swallow up so much bad teaching. In this case, you have to learn how to forgive yourself. Have you ever heard that? You know, you need to forgive yourself. You need to forgive yourself. That is such a terrible teaching. And it's certainly taught nowhere in the Bible. Yet many in the church have bought into it because modern psychology has found its way into the church. Why is it so bad, you might ask or wonder? Well, because it elevates the person above God. It elevates personal offense above God offense. It says that offering the human, I'm sorry, offending the human, is worse than offending God. How is that? Well, if you tell me that you are suffering from from debilitating guilt, then I would ask you this question. Have you offended God? Because guilt comes when we offend a holy God. So you, you tell me, yes. I say, well, how? And you tell me how. And then I would ask you if you've asked God for forgiveness. And you say, oh, yes, I've asked God for forgiveness. So then I would ask you, well, do you believe that God has forgiven you in Christ? And you say, yes, I do. Then I ask, well, why are you still feeling guilty? And you reply, because I haven't forgiven myself yet. What this means, then, is that while you have God's assurance of forgiveness, not not all is right with you until you forgive yourself. By thinking this way, you have elevated yourself above God as the ultimate judge over your actions. You're telling me that it's nice that God has forgiven you, but that's not good enough. Beloved, Satan would love to entangle you in lies like this. And he does many times with Christians all over the place. Understand, accept, and enjoy God's forgiveness for your sins in Christ, which is always there, by the way, for the asking. And you can, because of Christ's one-time sacrifice. And when you ask, be sincere. Ask from the heart, and then rest in the fact that God has Forgiven you, go forward in service and never dwell on it again. Paul says that he puts those things behind him, right? You should too. Here's another thing. Jesus' grand entrance into the heavenly tabernacle secured eternal redemption for all God's elect. That's the last part of verse 12. Having obtained eternal redemption. The basic idea of redemption, as you know, is to is to regain possession of something in exchange for payment. You might, you might go to a, um, a place and redeem something. You know, we, we redeem these. You, uh, you find that in a flyer. You go and you, and, and you give them the object, and they redeem it for you, and they, they make payment. In our context, it means that God buys out, or buys us out, rather, out of a, con- uh, out of a condition of slavery and bondage. And he restores us. That's what redemption is, kind of basically. He buys us out of a condition of slavery and bondage, and he restores us. In this way, God redeemed Adam. The payment or ransom was paid, of course, to God, because God, God's penalty 
for sin is death. The wages of sin is death. So God pays this ransom. God paid God? Yes, God the Son paid with his life, spilled his blood, and paid the ransom set by God the Father. And Jesus propitiated or pleased the Father with his sacrifice. He entered into the most holy place with his blood and secured our redemption forever for good. Now God can welcome into his holy presence those who trust him and, and, and who trust in this redeeming work of Christ. Now here's something very wonderful. This redemption that Jesus secured for us is eternal. That's what it says. We have eternal life. But what is so great about our redemption is not just that it bought us out of a condition of slavery and bondage and death. Jesus' redemption restored us to a greater position than ever before. Listen very carefully. Jesus restored us to a position that actually is much greater and higher than Adam's position before the fall. Let me, let me explain what I'm getting at here. In Romans chapter 8, verse 20, Paul says that where sin abounds, grace abounds even more. Where sin abounds, grace abounds even more. That's a profound truth that we come to understand well in this context of redemption. Here Paul is clear that what Jesus obtained for his people by his life and his cross work was more than they lost in Adam's sin and the fall of the human race. More. Remember, grace is greater than sin. We sing about that. It abounds far more than sin. The effects of God's grace are greater than the effects of sin. So what Jesus obtained for us in salvation is far more than what Satan took away from Adam. Jesus offers believers more than they ever had before. God's grace will settle for nothing less than the best. This is eternal redemption that Jesus secured. Adam, Adam was here. He sinned and he fell here. God redeems humanity and brings them here to heaven. Practically speaking, we might ask the question, how should this affect us in our Christian lives? What does this mean for us practically? Sounds good theoretically. Well, because Jesus secured for us more than what Satan took away from Adam, the best, in fact, that we could possibly imagine we have a principle in the Christian life that says this, always seek, always seek God's best in every situation. Do you seek God's best in every situation? Or do you settle for where you are now? Or perhaps when you fall, you might settle for going back to where you left off. But this principle says always seek God's best in every situation. This is such a revolutionary principle for our sanctification. When we encounter problems in life, we go to the Word to overcome them. But we never settle for a restoration of things as they were before. 
in the past, no matter how recent, we must settle for what we, we, we mustn't settle rather, rather for what we had, but rather more than what we had, a better situation that ever existed in our past. I've seen many Christian marriages saved by this principle. You know, I'm a biblical counselor. I've been at it for almost 30 years. Many marriage, married couples come. I've seen many helped by this principle. A couple that comes into my counseling office with a marriage that has been ripped to shreds is a familiar one. They tell me that they have all, they're all ready to divorce. It's, it's almost a foregone conclusion with them. Cannot fix this. After, after all, they say there's nothing left to fix. And they assure me, we are finished. We've had it. And they say, we're not going back to what we had. To which I respond, amen. And of course, I'm, I'm interested in more than just shock value here with that response, so I continue. God doesn't want you to go back to where you left off before this whole mess started either. Why should he? Why would he? It sounds so deficient. No, Christ has something better in mind for you. As he had more in mind, something far better in mind for you. You can have it. You see how this principle works. As a pastor and biblical counselor, for me to offer this sad couple a return to where they were is to offer no hope. Because they're just going to fall again. They shouldn't go back to that. They should want a new and better future for their marriage in Christ. And their theological reason for this is the doctrine of grace, which far exceeds the effects of our sin in the Christian life. That's how I read it. This principle is operational in every aspect of our lives, our work, our work, our work ethic, our parenting, our one anothering, interpersonal relationships, and so on. It is in keeping with Jesus' work of redemption in our lives and the nature of God's grace for Christians to always see God's best in every situation. It is part of striving for perfection in the Christian life, even though we don't see perfection the side of heaven. Never settle for the past, beloved. Never settle for going back for the way things were. That's not biblical. Strive to make this better. That is also in keeping with our growth in Christ. Paul says, but we all with unveiled faces looking as in a mirror at the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory just as from the Lord to the Spirit. Every day we become more like our Lord. Better at it. And in a better position, I quote Jay Adams, the late Jay Adams, no matter what hap no no matter what the problem is, he says, no matter how great sin has abounded, the Christian stance stand is struck by the far more abounding nature of the grace of Jesus Christ in redemption. What a difference this makes. Thank God for his gracious implication of his many faceted salvation, end quote. Well finally and very hurriedly, let me say, Jesus grand entrance into the heavenly tabernacle with his own blood, once for all time, not only secured eternal redemption, it provided a total cleansing for our conscience. That's 
verse 13. For if the blood of the bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who have been defiled sanctify for, for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? We've already proven that the Old Testament saints did in fact receive or were assured forgiveness from God by the priest, and they could walk away from him with a clear conscience. The sacrificial system was designed to give this assurance in two ways. One way, one way was when the sacrifice was burned up on the altar. It was God's way of showing them that God accepted their offer. The other way was when the priest ate the remains or leftover of the sacrifice. That, too, was an indication that forgiveness had been Granted, these two acts sent the worshipers away with a clear conscience. No question. Hebrews 9.12 is not contradicting this. It does not teach that the Old Testament saints could never be free from a guilty conscience. Absolutely not. So how does the New Covenant cleanse our conscience in a way that the Old Covenant, Covenant couldn't for Old Testament believers? Well, it cleanses our conscience more fully, more completely, the New Covenant comes with new revelation that informs our conscience. And the completed crosswork of Christ makes for a confident walk of faith. While believers under the Old Covenant also trusted in Messiah's crosswork, their trust was in a future hope, not reality as ours is. Messiah, <coughs> Messiah hadn't done his crosswork yet. The external, earthly, sacrificial system stood in the gap until he did. Therefore, until their hope of Messiah, Messiah's coming became reality, they would have to repeatedly bring sin offerings and burnt offerings that at best foreshadowed the cross work of Christ. They, in and of themselves, then, did not take away sin. They could not grant forgiveness or cleanse the conscience. They could only point to the one who could, and so it reminded the believers that their forgiveness was grounded in the future work of Messiah. So until Messiah came, the Old Testament believers had to bring their sin offerings and their burnt offerings every time they sinned in order to clear their conscience every time they sinned. Their offerings were endless, and that all changed in the New Covenant. Messiah came, completed his cross work, and secured our eternal redemption. He fulfilled the law. He did away with the ceremonial aspects of it. So now we don't have to perform the endless sacrifices and ceremonies that foreshadowed his work in order to be assured of forgiveness and maintain a clear conscience. No. No, his work is done. It is finished. And when we sin, we still need to confess it to God, but now it is with the knowledge that we are forgiven because of the once-for-all sacrifice that covers our sins, past, present, and future, and the ongoing priestly work that Jesus does on our behalf in the earthly sanctuary. We know all that from the New Testament. Old Testament saints didn't know that. Their hope is our reality, and... That is the essential difference and why our conscience is clear in a fuller way. It's more informed, more complete. Practically speaking, let me close our section and our time out this morning with, with this. 
After comparing the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, you have to admit there is a practical difference between living in anticipation of a reality and living the reality itself, right? There's a difference. Difference between living in light of the reality and living in the reality itself. We brought this up last time, I believe, uh, as one profound lesson that we could learn from the Old Testament saints, and, and, and I'll restate it this way. While, while, we, while we New Covenant believers can pray better prayers than the Old Covenant believers, because our prayers are more informed with the revelation of the New Testament, while we can accomplish greater things than they ever could for the same reason, and present a walk of faith that is much stronger and more confident than they ever could, and again, for the same reason. There is something that we can learn from them, and that is how to live in anticipation of a future reality. What they waited for and hoped for, we now live in. But though we live in the best covenant times possible, the best promises the new ministry of the Holy Spirit with the mind of Christ and the completed canon of Scripture doesn't get any better than this here on earth. There still remains a better life to come, right? There still remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. It does get better than this in heaven. And just like the Old Testament believers, we live in anticipation of a future reality. We're not there yet. We live in anticipation of it. And we will get to Hebrews 11 and we'll see how we take our cue from the champions of righteousness of old in this area of expectant living. So are you living? Are you living in light of the return of Christ? That's really part of what this text asks us. We can do a better job of expectant living than the Old Testament believers because Jesus has already come once. We have every reason to believe then that he will come again. So so we have a better reason than the Old Testament saints to live live in 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 a greater and fuller expectation of the reality than they ever did. The New Testament has much to say about living in light of the second coming. Jesus himself urges the church to be watchful. Stay on your guard. Make sure no one misleads you. Make sure that you're investing in the kingdom as you should. Make sure that you are living your life in such a way that broadcasts the coming of the kingdom and that makes the faith attractive. If there is one thing that allows us to enjoy the clear conscience that Jesus bought for us, It is holy living, isn't it? We want no regrets at the end of time. Not one of us in this room wants any regrets when we stand before Christ. True contentment, then, and peace of mind that everyone in this world wants so badly and goes to great great lengths to, to try and secure comes to those who know that they are in God's will, and that they have his pleasure. If you know you're in God's will and, has his, and you have his pleasure, his approval, therein lies contentment. The whole world could be against you, and it doesn't make a difference. Father, we thank you for this time together. 
We thank you that we can 